Tuesday, 19th of December, 2023 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast, where we connect you to the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. I'm Jeffrey Bingamid, your host. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, and it's my pleasure to welcome you. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services of New York, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show. Last week, I stopped by the Greenwich Historical Society for a pleasant conversation with Christopher Shields, curator of Library and Archives. On Greenwich in the Gilded Age, we'll visit Seven Gables in Belhaven Park. On Greenwich Life as it is and was, Lucian Edwards wrote about the interesting history of the town's stone quarries. You'll hear about the 1792 Zophar Mead House. History is replete with wrongdoings and misdeeds, and you'll hear about those on crimes and misdemeanors. It pays to be polite. Now, did you know that the famous Beecher family ran a school for young girls in Coscob? We'll share more on our December holiday countdown too. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Support is made possible by a landscape architecture firm with an optimistic view of the future. Alexander Affiliates is a professional landscape architectural firm specializing in designing and planning visually appealing, functional, and environmentally responsible outdoor spaces for residential and commercial developments. From backyard perennial garden preparation to regional coastal planning, we have you covered. In addition, we serve a global clientele that has brought in a lot of business for us through word-of-mouth referrals. Some of Alexander Affiliate's clients include construction companies, land and property developers, government offices, engineering companies, geographers, and soil samplers. Its mission is simple. Instead of focusing on saving the planet, let's concentrate on thriving together. In business since 1980, you can learn more about Alexander Affiliates by going online to alexanderaffiliates.com. To learn more and to contact Alexander Affiliates, you can call 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. Its mailing address is P.O. Box 711, Greenwich, Connecticut, 068 Eastern Neurological Services of New York offers comprehensive neurologic diagnoses and therapeutic services. Dr. Judy Gao, MD, a top New York neurologist, specializes in dynamic treatment of neurological diseases, neurorehabilitation, and physical therapy. With convenient locations in New York City and a multilingual staff, Eastern Neurological Services offers a wide array of treatments for neurological disorders, including general neurological consultations, on-site diagnostic testing, and physical and neurocognitive therapy. Now, the most trusted platform for medical products you need is available for you at HealthSite.com. 
pro.com. Shop online for the best in preventative medicine and health maintenance. These products are used by Dr. Gao and her family, and if they're good enough for them, well, they're good enough for you as well. Visit easternneurologic.com or call 212-889-6540 or 212-227-6500. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. The Greenwich Historical Society's Library and Archives are located at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob on the grounds of the Bush Holly House headquarters. The Society continuously collects, catalogs, and preserves tens of thousands of historical documents relating to life in Greenwich, Connecticut. Last week, I stopped by to meet with Christopher Shields, curator of Library and Archives. Here is our conversation. Christopher Shields, I want to thank you very, very much for meeting with me here in the Greenwich Historical Society Archives. This is a very, very special place. So let's get down to it. What is the, the core mission of Greenwich Historical Society's Library and Archives? Well, we collect documentation uh, primarily primary source documentation, mm -hmm. and we want to use that to connect people to their community's past and uh, help them to better understand where they live and put history into context so they have a better understanding of the present day. Um, and we are always surprised at the variety of questions that we receive from people. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a very diverse collection that uh, can answer a lot of different questions, so it's always interesting, and I'm always learning something new from the questions that we receive. And indeed, the rest of us get to learn a lot of new things about the uh, history of, uh, of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. So we are very grateful for that. Now, what does the library and the archives that we are sitting in right now consist of? Well, we have, obviously, in the library, we have a lot of books dealing with the, uh, the town and the state of Connecticut and the Coscob Art Colony mm -hmm. and decorative arts and architecture. In terms of the library and archives, we have uh, probably the two most commonly referenced things are maps and photographs. Mm. We receive the most research inquiries related to people interested in their home or community mm. uh, or people who are doing research on their family history. Mm. And the maps and the photographs are helpful for both of those things. Oh, right. Um, but we also have extensive manuscript collections, mm. ledgers, uh, journals, scrapbooks, we have organizational records of uh, clubs and uh, businesses that did business in town over the years. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think you get a sense, you know, basically from that description of just how diverse a collection that we have and that even if we can't 100% answer somebody's question, we can usually get them further along in their research. The Historical Society, the Archives and Library, you do describe or you do provide some uh, research services. So describe those research uh, services for me and, and the audience as well. And how does uh, one submit a request? The best way to submit a request is to go to our website, um, and you'll see at the top of the page it says Library and Archives. Mm -hmm. 
there's a uh, submenu under that that says research services. Mm -hmm. And if you click on that, you can fill out a form mm -hmm. um, that describes what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. uh, so the way we work is we provide uh, up to an hour of research without charge. Mm -hmm. And we basically do a kind of like a survey of what types of information we may have in the collection that could be responsive to somebody's question. Uh, if it goes over an hour, then we charge. You get a discount if you're a member, mm -hmm. uh, so it makes sense to become a member. But or you can you can send an email or or make a telephone call and leave a message for me. I'm easy to reach, mm -hmm. and uh, you know if you have a research question, please reach out, and uh, we're, I'll be happy to get back to you. Now uh, we are all in the um, the internet age, uh, as we would like to uh, to call it, the digital age. One of the uh, things that I like to explore on the um, Historical Society's website, which is GreenwichHistory.org, um, are the digital archives. And so I wanted to know if you could. Uh, spend a moment or two uh, or more uh, talking to us about the digital archives and how can the um, uh, the public access those? The digital archives is kind of exciting. We recently completed a, uh, a grant, a three-year grant project that allowed us to uh, digitize and catalog pretty much our full Greenwich photograph collection, as well as some images from our real estate collections. Mm. That allowed us to add a lot of content to our what we call our digital collections portal, which is accessible via our website. So that's a great place to start. You can, you know, like I said, it's cataloged, so you can do a full text search. You can search for a name. You can search for a street address or, or an organization, and you can see what we have. We also have uh, what I consider our digital archives. We have our library catalog for our research library that's fully fully described, and you can see what books that we books or magazines or periodicals that we might have that's responsive. And also very important, we have a finding aid section. Now, what a finding aid is is it's a tool for understanding what is inside a particular collection. So it usually provides some context, you know, a little overview, either a biographical overview or information about an organization or business, just to put the contents of the collection into some historical context. And then you can use that collection to see what particular series or even folder may have uh, information that you'd be interested in looking at if you came into the archive. Mm -hmm. And then we also have the uh, John Henry Twachman Catalog Raisonné uh, that we host on our digital uh, archives page so that uh, if you were interested in exploring more of his uh, artistic output, this is a, a fantastic resource. It's pretty much the definitive resource for his work. Uh, and that's also accessible um, under the Library and Archives uh, section mm -hmm. on our website. The um, You know, I have found the Finding Aid section to be very, very valuable. Um, it really has been, yes. Uh, and so, yes, we have a we have a guest researcher here who is on the other side of the room with her thumbs up and... Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She is the finding. You, aid oh, author. you are the finding <laughs> aids offer. All right. You know what? I will come back, and we will have to have you on my little um, Greenwich History podcast. There are a lot of people that will um, maybe not worship the ground that you walk on, but they will come very, very close to it. I think so. <laughs> see anything to make the, the journey into um, researching our paths a little bit uh, more helpful. And and I should, I yeah, should yeah. say, I mean, it's, it, yeah. we encourage, I mean, the digital archives are great, but we do encourage people yeah. to come and experience the collections in person. Because, I mean, I think, you know, it's great to have a digital representation of something, but you kind of... You get a different experience when you actually see something and handle it up close. So. Oh, yes. You know, I, I would actually concur with that. I really do. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was here when, you know, on the board, in fact, when we had the, the original archives building here and all that. And, 
And just to be immersed in all of that was just such an amazing experience. So well, thank you for that reminder of that. So we encourage people to come here to the Greenwich Historical Society's archives. Um, now, I wanted to tell you because um, recently, and this was on the, the Halloween Day uh, podcast that we had that story about the cemetery, well, Putnam Cemetery. And you and I and John Bridge were going back and forth on emails and, and things like that with a lot of incredible um, uh, things about that, uh, which I found quite a lot of it to be quite new to me. And so I wanted to know if you would just spend maybe a couple of moments describing some of the more colorful requests that, that you have received in terms of researching um, aspects of the town's history. So talk to me about that. I think where the colorful comes in sometimes is in what um, somebody may ask a question yeah. and maybe not be fully prepared for the answer. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, I mean, that can come in, you know, if somebody's doing genealogical research, mm -hmm. they may... They may discover something that you that was unexpected, mm -hmm. or if somebody's doing property research, they may discover something perhaps disturbing about the home that they live in oh, or dear. what happened there. <laughs> I always feel kind of a little conflicted because I mean I don't I don't mean you know like when somebody asks a question, I mean I want to provide them with the information. Sure. But I mean you have to re you have to realize that when you're doing this kind of research, um, you in a sense can be opening up a can of worms and. You kind of have to be prepared on some level as to, you know, you have to be prepared for some surprises. Oh, yes. And I think that's what we've we've discovered. Ah, <laughs> okay. Yes, there are always interesting surprises. And, and, uh, and I have to admit, and, and, and then I'll, uh, we'll round up with the, uh, one or two more questions uh, before we close. But, you know, one of the things in the production and the research I do for this podcast is one of the things that I have found uh, quite interesting has been what the town was like during Prohibition. And there are all sorts of very surprising stories about, you know, hidden speakeasies. In fact, I think that the number of bars and things, you know, uh, you know, illicit behavior and things like that actually went up in Greenwich during Prohibition. I, I would like to ask, you know, if I could, please, um, you know, I would love to see uh, some kind of an exhibition about what Greenwich was like during Prohibition. I think that a lot of people, I think it would be very entertaining at the very, very least to see. And yeah. from what I can tell, there are, like you said, there are plenty of stories that, the, especially the coverage that a lot of these things received in the local newspaper. Oh, yes. <laughs> not so secret, it seems. <laughs> not so secret. I think people pinched their noses and looked the other way, but they knew what was really, really going on. All right, now, as we, as we start to close, um, first of all, tell us what your hours are, what your contact information is, and, what, and finally, what can the, what can the public uh, out there do to support you and the staff here and uh, making this wonderful facility, the Greenwich Historical Society's library and archive available uh, to everybody. I think the main thing is becoming a member of the Greenwich Historical Society. That's so important to us because yes. it shows, you know, it shows that you're committed to uh, the organization and, and, and understanding and preserving Greenwich history. Mm -hmm. And it's also incredibly use useful when we go out to potential funders, either, you know, people who are making private donations oh, or grant, you know, granting opportunities to, to show that we have a lot of people who are committed enough to become members. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing you can do. Oh, yeah. uh, the next thing is obviously always reach out, reach out to us. We love to hear from the community, any kind of recommendations that you may have. You never know, like for, for an exhibition or, um, you know, a topic that you would like to explore either yourself or you think it would be ripe for us to explore. Um, you know, we 
we like to be, uh, we don't want to be the ones generating all the ideas. We want it to come from the community mm -hmm. uh, to the historical society. And then uh, as far as when the library and archives is open, we have our, what we call our public archives day. Uh, Wednesday is from 10 to 4. It's usually helpful if you can get in touch with me and just let me know what you're interested in so I can do a little uh, research in advance and, and make your time here a little more productive. And also, if Wednesday doesn't work for you, you can get in touch with me um, either by email or telephone or that uh, research request form, and we can set up another appointment time for you to come in and we can talk. Well, Christopher Shields, you are the archivist of the Greenwich Historical Society. You and everybody here, you're all doing a fantastic job. And we are very, very grateful. Um, and, um, and again, folks, you can learn more by going to GreenwichHistory.org. Thank you, Christopher, for spending some time with me today. Thank you for meeting with me. I appreciate it. <laughs> best-kept secret in Greenwich, Connecticut is a marvelous destination with an even more extraordinary mission. Coffee for Good invites you to be a part of a magical story in a restored historic mansion that inclusively brings people together thanks to a unique nonprofit partnership between Abelis and the Second Congregational Church. When you enter the doors of the 1858 Solomon Mead House, you'll be instantly drawn to the warmth and ambiance of Coffee for Good at 48 Maple Avenue. Serving coffee, teas, and delectable goodies and more, Coffee for Good is a self-sustaining teaching platform that trains people with special needs who acquire the skills and self-confidence they need to thrive in the community. Voted Best Coffee Shop by the readers of Greenwich Magazine, honored with the Community Impact Leader Award by the Connecticut Restaurant Association, and now the Jack Moffley Nonprofit Leadership Award, Coffee for Good is open daily, Monday through Saturday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Enjoy free parking, free Wi-Fi, as well as year-round indoor and outdoor seating, a popular destination for gatherings, meetings, and a fantastic study spot, too. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue, behind the Second Congregational Church in the Putnam Hill National Historic District. Visit coffeeforgood.org. <laughs> Greenwich, Connecticut's Gilded Age era was a remarkable time when wealthy Americans constructed splendid mansions, outbuildings, and designed landscapes. On today's show, our journey will take us to Seven Gables in Belhaven. Now, the principal owner of Seven Gables was Edward N. Norton. It was built in 1891. Its address is One Harbor Drive. By the way, the house is still with us today in the 21st century. The architect is not known. Hmm. Jonas Norton, who lived from 1816 to 1890, began to amass his fortune in the 1840s when his clipper ships carried eastern prospectors around the tip of South America to the California gold fields. Later, his firm evolved into Norton & Son on South Street in Manhattan, a bustling produce and coffee transporter, and later still into the worldwide shipping giant Norton Lilly & Company. The son in the company name was Edward N. Norton, a golf and yachting aficionado who in 1892 built a magical, darkly stained, shingled English cottage on a Portland stone block foundation on a 3.16 acre site at One Harbor Drive. 
Norton called it Seven Gables, likely after the house of the Hawthorne novel with the seven acutely peaked gables facing towards various points of the compass. Norton's house also featured a multiplicity of acutely peaked gables. Situated on a promontory overlooking Jack's Island and Byram Harbor, the front elevation faced the largest of the common greens where Meadowood Drive met Harbor Drive. For a number of years during the late 40s, the house was owned by Leo Van Munching, who, as a young man, secured the, ex the exclusive rights to distribute Heineken beer in the United States. Unfortunately, the architect's identity is lost. His complex design showed a level of sophistication unusual even for the most elaborate of Bellhaven cottages designed in the 1890s. On the dramatic front facade, two large, steeply pitched gables rose like arched brows over a half-timbered turret with highly decorative inserts of pebble-dash stucco between the timbered detailing. There is a gambrel on the center, open dormer, with the family crest emblazoned on it, along with protruding bays on either side of the entrance, whose long, sharply-pitched gable and coach lamp seemed hobbit-like. The house was distinguished in part by its extensive Portland brownstone base, the only house in Belhaven of its nature, of its stature, that had refrained from using Byram bluestone for its foundation stone, which was quarried just across the harbor. Seven Gables' windows were distinguished by gracefully elaborate curved muttons and mullions, or strips of decorative bent wood separating the panes. Tall decorative Roman brick chimneys and sharply gabled windows completed the English countryside effect. The interior boasts extensive wainscotings, eight fireplaces, coffered and tracery ceilings, Cuban mahogany paneled walls in the dining room, and glass French doors with looping muntins adorning the transoms. Seven Gables has survived and been restored beautifully. In 1896, the then-new owner commenced an 18-month renovation, recreating a new attached uh, carriage house for garaging and staff. The original carriage house structure on just under an acre has been subdivided from the property in the 1950s. That structure was then rebuilt as a separate residence. The piazza and pergola overlooking the sound were enclosed, and an elaborate lower-level pool complex constructed where a large perennial garden once stood. The shingles, originally dark green, were at one point painted white along with the brownstone base, were replaced and are now an attractive weathered gray contrasting with the original natural brownstone foundation stone, which was also stripped of its white paint. And that, my friends, is about Seven Gables over in Belhaven. Today's journey back in time was made possible by Victorian Summer, the historic houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut by Matt Bernard. Belhaven was one of the first and most spectacular Gilded Age residence parks in America. Just like that, the holidays are upon us. Books make great gifts. With a cornucopia of titles to choose from, it can be hard to select the right one. Well, my friends, worry no more. I recommend Victorian Summer, the historic houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut by Matthew Bernard. 
Experience the wonders of the flowering of Belhaven, a bastion of Gilded Age Victorian luxury from 1884 to 1929. Beguiling estate biographies and rich illustrations tell the stories of exquisite estates, renowned architects, and more. Visit GreenwichHistory.org for the Greenwich Historical Society's Museum Store. Call 203-869-6899. But better still, visit the museum store at 47 Strickland Road in Cascob. Treat yourself to unhassled free parking, as well as complimentary gift wrapping and coffee or tea in the warm ambiance of the Artist's Cafe in the Toby's Tavern building. Be sure to mention this podcast and tell them your host, Jeffrey Bingham Mead, sent you. You are listening to the Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. It's our pleasure to introduce you to a new columnist that I will be taking uh, information from and featuring it here on the podcast. And his name was Whitman Bailey. Around 1924, he started to publish commentaries and hand sketches uh, in the papers uh, about local history sites, not just here in Greenwich, but also in Stamford and I believe in, in other communities in the area. The interesting thing about Whitman Bailey is that uh, I was told years ago by the late town historian William E. Finch Jr. that Bailey was colorblind and so he was not able to create art in the normal uh, sense with uh, with colors and everything. So he had these really incredible uh, sketches that uh, that he made, and they were published um, in this particular case in the Greenwich News and Graphic. I have a story that dates from December 31st, 1928, um, and it's about one of my family's uh, very old and very prominent ancestral homesteads. This one is located um, in the Belhaven Field Point Park area over on Pear Lane. Um, it's quite a beautiful house. Um, it is known as the 1792 Zophar Mead House, and I'd like to share the uh, commentary that he had. He begins with a poem that says, There are hermit souls that live withdrawn, lest the spence of their self-contempt. There are souls like stars that dwell apart in a fellowless firmament. There are pioneer souls that blaze their paths where highways never ran. But let me live by the side of the road and be a friend to man. Casting its angular shadows across the roadway of our present Field Point Park is an old homestead commonly known as the Oliver Mead House. It was built in 1792 by Abraham Mead, a former officer of the Revolutionary War. The house has been handed down through several generations, but it is still in the possession of a close relative of this well-known family. Oliver D. Mead, a cousin of the late Oliver, has the same fondness for the old house 
as had its former owners, so that the place is well kept up and the surrounding gardens have the same dignified and simple charm of a century ago. Strange as it may seem, Abraham Mee and its builders spent very little time in the homestead, for his son, Zophar Mead, took possession of the house soon after its completion, and many of his treasured personal belongings are still there today. It is interesting to learn of the life of Captain Abraham Mead. He was born in 1742, and at an early age, he learned the potter's trade at a pottery which was run by a Dutchman on the westerly side of Indian Harbor. Abraham had a knack, apparently, uh, for he soon became a partner of the modest firm, and later, as owner, he succeeded to the Dutchman. Captain Meade's early military training he secured in the militia, and at the May session of the legislature in 1774, he was commissioned captain of the Middle Company or Train Band in the town of Greenwich. Immediately after the Lexington Alarm, April 1775, troops were raised for the protection of New York, and Captain Meade of the Horseneck 9th Regiment, with part of his company, was ordered to respond and to assist in the defense. In 1776, he was detailed to command the 4th Company of the 1st Battalion Wadsworth Brigade to reinforce General Washington. He also was also among the 4,000 men under General Putnam who were left as a rearguard during the retreat from New York, a retreat carried on while General Washington took a, a, a position on Harlem Heights. As an example of early American architecture, the house of Captain Meade is one of the best still standing in Greenwich. Like the Putnam Cottage, it should be preserved, for from both the historical and architectural standpoint, it lends tradition as well as charm to the background of our town. Well, it's time for Greenwich Life as it is and was. This was a column that was published in the Greenwich News and Graphic um, roughly about 100 years ago. And uh, this particular column today was penned by Lucian B. Edwards. Uh, the title of it is A Flourishing Greenwich Industry for More Than Half a Century, Which Was Abolished. Uh, but this article focuses on an interesting part of our history, and that is about the uh, the quarries uh, that once um, existed here. And uh, without any further ado, I will share this with you. And by the way, this was published in the Greenwich News and Graphic on Monday, December 31st, 1928. And the story goes as follows. For more than half a century, until about 30 years ago, several Greenwich industries were very prosperous that were abandoned because changed methods of quote-unquote doing some things made their continuance unprofitable. They produced fortunes for their owners or operators, afforded steady employment for a large number of wage earners at high salaries for those days, and were veritable hives of industrial activities in Greenwich for many years. The most notable of these was the quarrying of the flint-like stone of which there were large quantities near the shore front of Greenwich, and no harder rock to be found anywhere. It was very valuable for construction purposes during the long period of time the business of quarrying uh, was carried on in Greenwich. 
But when concrete, a compact mess of lime, sand, gravel, mortar, and crushed stone was created, that soon became to be considered of much more utility for construction purposes than the hard stone taken from the Greenwich quarries and displaced it for such uses, almost entirely forcing the abandonment of the industry because it was unprofitable, compelling a large number of men who had been employed in the quarries to seek other ways of earning their living. Quote-unquote down, everybody called it down. In the days this article is telling about at Byram Shore, where Byram Park, the public bathing and outing section of Greenwich, has been located for the past decade. The first stone quarried in the town of Greenwich was taken, according to Spencer Mead's History of Greenwich. It was opened by William M. and Thomas Rich in 1840. Thirty years later, in 1870, John Voorhees, who was for a number of years warden of the borough of Greenwich, instituting many of the improvements that had so much to do with the development of the borough, that would be the downtown area, by the way, into a progressive community. And Sylvester Hill commenced the operating of a quarry along adjoining that owned by William and Thomas Rich. There was also a quarry worked by Captain Joseph J. Mead, or G. Mead, grandfather of Justice of the Peace Albert S. Mead at Tollgate Hill, which furnished much of the stone for local construction work, the Second Congregational Church, the First Presbyterian, Christ Episcopal, and St. Mary's Roman Catholic Churches, all being built of stone taken from Greenwich quarries. Most of the stone quarried at the Riches and Voorhees quarries was to fill orders from New York City, and for a number of years, these quarries were kept busy in the getting out of stone for the Brooklyn Bridge, the piers of what was then considered was to be the most wonderful bridge in the country, if not in the world. A marvel of engineering ability being built of this hard Greenwich stone, which it was considered certain would stand all climatic changes for all time. What were called Belgian paving stones had replaced the cobblestones with which the business streets of New York City had been paved about half a century ago. They were a little larger than building bricks and of necessity had to be very hard because of the constant heavy traffic over them. Slippery they were when wet, and a menace to horses drawing heavily loaded vehicles and automobiles, of which it is hardly necessary to state there, were none of them, would never have been able to travel over them without the chains, for the autos surely would have otherwise skidded. The Greenwich quarries of William and Thomas Rich and John Voorhees supplied all or nearly all of the Belgian paving stones for years, and two schooners loaded with stone from these quarries made regular weekly trips to New York City with the stone for construction or street paving purposes. Until 1900, when the industry reached its height of prosperity, these stone quarries had been, for years, one of the most important industries in Greenwich. At that time, however, because of the introduction of asphalt, blocks of wood, and other inventions for street pavement, New York City no longer used Belgian paving stones, and there were no more orders for them. And by the introduction of concrete for building purposes, the demand for Greenwich quarry stone began to decline, 
though for a number of years the industry was carried on by Willis and Silas D. Rich and Jacob Voorhees, in a small way compared to the big business transacted in Greenwich, Quarry Stone of previous years. The first holdup by highwaymen was successfully carried out about 35 years ago on the Quarry Road. One Saturday afternoon, the robbers succeeded in getting away with the money for the weekly pay of the men employed at the Voorhees Quarry. As was his weekly custom, John Voorhees was proceeding over the Quarry Road the Saturday afternoon, carrying a bag containing $800 with which to pay off his quarrymen. Suddenly, without warning and hardly aware of their approach, two men sprang from the side of the road, grabbed the bag from Mr. Voorhees, and, and safely made their escape and were never apprehended. Well, my friends, it's time for Crimes and Misdemeanors. This is a reminder that not everybody in Greenwich, Connecticut's history was law-abiding. This particular story dates from 18... Let's see, 1884, I stand corrected. I almost said 1894. Uh, so, yes, uh, this was published in the Greenwich Geographic on November 22nd of that year. A coat racket. Who was that man captured Tuesday evening? Hmm... Temporarily, we engage in other important business. A thief caught, an overcoat regained. And the story goes as follows. He signed his name on the hotel register Saturday evening at the Lennox House as S.S. Smith Home. He was registered Thursday at the Hotel de Jail, Bridgeport, where he will make his home for the winter and where overcoats and robes are not heeded. A tempting overcoat hung on the rack in the hall of the Lennox House on Sunday morning at breakfast time. At noontime, it seemed to be rather evident that it was missing. As it was, our coat, we were immediately concerned, somewhat more than we would have been as a matter of news. Inquiry elicited no information as to its whereabouts. We waited until Monday in the hope that it had been mislaid, but it hadn't. Forcibly made conscious of our loss by a decided change in the weather, we sought an interview with Sheriff Dayton and ventilated our suspicions. Hmm... The result of our talk and a little detective work was the capture of the thief and the profession of, or the possession, as I stand corrected, of our coat. On Tuesday night, about midnight, we found the thief in a saloon and about the same time our coat, though they had parted company some time previous, and the coat had changed hands two or three times, for we had traced it from one to another. It was doing night duty on a young man of our village when Sheriff Dayton and our force confronted him and asked him where he got it. It looked rather the worse for wear and was a trifle large and a valuable fair pair of gloves that were in the pockets was missing. A man whom we had seen about the hotel Saturday evening and went away on Sunday was suspected of the theft. We heard of him at Mianus on Monday. He was traced back to Greenwich on Tuesday. On Tuesday evening, Foreman Flynn of the graphic office and Foreman Merrill of Belhaven, who were on the lookout for him, saw a man that answered his description, enter Haggerty's saloon, and immediately reported the fact. 
they went back to the saloon, and after interviewing the object of their prey upon the political situation and other topics of the day, tendered him an invitation to accompany them in a quote-unquote walk around the block, which he accepted. They walked up the street near the place where Sheriff Dayton and the overcoat owner were concealed. We recognized the man and ordered Sheriff Dayton to arrest him, but not till after he had steadily denied stealing the coat and being at the Lennox house. We quickly sent word up to the hotel, and he was identified by a score as the man who registered there Saturday night as S.S. Smith. He was then locked up. In the morning, it was learned that this man had sold a buffalo robe to S.A. Minor, who was given to Sheriff Dayton. About noon, Mr. Dayton learned that the robe had been stolen from DeForest Ferris of Stamford. Smith was brought before Justice Russell in the afternoon and pleaded guilty to both charges. For stealing the overcoat, he was sent to jail for 30 days and costs. For stealing the robe, he was fined $7 and costs. Sheriff Dayton deserves no little credit for his prompt work. There is considerable thieving going on around town, and it is hoped that this quick arrest and punishment will have a good effect. It pays to be polite to the public when one is in a public position, began a story that was published in the Greenwich Graphic on January 1st, 1898. Miss Bertha Sherwood has found out that she is a very popular telephone operator in Portchester, and that would be in New York, of course, and she knows the reason. She is polite, courteous, and very accommodating, and never makes a tart answer. She not only received $100 on Christmas Day, but a number of beautiful presents were sent to her. And, by the way, we might say right here that the two-girl... Operators in the Greenwich branch are efficient and obliging. There is no town in the country where there is a better telephone service than in Greenwich, the manager of the station being Mr. R. Bogue, B-O-G-U-E is how you spell his name. So, well, there's a, a, a nice um, a New Year's resolution for you. Uh, be polite in public. <laughs> <laughs> you'll get you'll get money and presents. This is a Christmas story that dates from uh, 1898, January 1st to be exact, um, and it concerns uh, something I found rather intriguing, and uh, that was Christmas wheelbarrows. <laughs> anyway, the story goes as follows: The Methodist Church was crowded with people on Christmas Eve, and Christmas joy was visible on the faces of old and young, and especially of the children. Now, the, the Methodist Church would be the one that is directly across the street from the YMCA at the corner of um, uh, Mason Street and East Putnam Avenue. Anyway, on with the story. The exercises were particularly interesting. The children sang carols and Miss Wickham and Mr. Janeski with Mrs. Martin at the organ made music that sent a hush and a thrill through the church. The electric lights were afterward turned out, and a big candle was brought into the church and put at the side of Mr. Adams, who read dramatically the poem, "'Twas the Night Before Christmas." While he was reading, four boys came into the church with wheelbarrows and trundled them up the aisle to the platform. They were filled with candies, 
oranges, and other good things, which were distributed to the children. That's kind of nice. Teachers and scholars received happy remembrances of the Christmas tide. Mrs. Adams and Mrs. Martin were given a beautiful silk comfortable, I guess, comfort. Before I close today's podcast, I wanted to share with you something that I only learned about just very recently. It relates to my family history, but also to the history of Koskob, and it concerns a school that used to exist in uh, the uh, in, in Koskob, and it was called the Beecher Family School for Young Girls. Very, very interesting. Um, it was uh, based in the old Mead House uh, that... Um, had been owned by Carolyn Mill Smith Mead uh, before she uh, passed away uh, in 1910. Um, she leased the house to Mrs. James Beecher. She was the sister-in-law of the Reverend Henry Ward Beecher, very famous soul related to Harriet Beecher Stowe, uh, where Mrs. Beecher had a young women's and girls' school and uh, taught there for a number of years. I think it was there for about 12 years. I found a pamphlet uh, in the James C. Beecher family papers, um, 1850 to 1946, in the Harvard Library online, and I'd like to share this with you. Um, and if you want to see a picture of this, you can go to GreenwichAtownForAllSeasons.blogspot.com, look up today's show, which would be December 19, 2023, and, um, and you will see it there. Uh, the brochure goes as follows. It is intended to offer here to a few girls under 14 the unusual combination of an excellent school with the special training in manners and morals that can only be found in a true and happy home. The location is perfect with regard to health and to all its surroundings. It is in a small village on Long Island Sound in the town of Greenwich, 30 miles from New York City by the New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad, and adjoins the larger town of Stamford. The house, which is called the Old Oak Homestead, is attractive on account of its size and its large and sunny rooms. It has four acres of playground about it, is elevated, well-drained, and within a few minutes walk of the salt water. There is a combination for only a limited number of pupils. This gives the school a family character and enables each pupil to receive in detail the necessary and loving attention required by her tender age. This place, therefore, presents special advantages to those who are too young, too delicate, or too backward for the larger boarding schools, and also to those who are, for any reason, deprived of a mother's care. Mrs. Perkins is an experienced and successful teacher and has that love for children without which no one should undertake the instruction of the young. She is assisted by very able teachers, both in music and in the ordinary branches of learning, and the most approved methods of teaching are used. The school is now in its 12th year. The terms are $324 for the school year, which commences the middle of September and closes in June, to be paid in sums of $108 in the middle of each of the three terms. The extras are music, dancing, and laundry work. 
The pupils remain through the vacations for the entire year when it is desired. Address or call upon Mrs. Frederick Beecher Perkins, Bayport, which was a name attempted uh, <laughs> to replace Coscob. It didn't work, obviously. Post Office Box, Coscob, Fairfield County, Connecticut. Now, there are references uh, in this brochure, and I'm not going to read all of them, but some of them are quite um, quite prominent. I think the most prominent of the references uh, that people could uh, look to about this school was a man by the name of, of Samuel L. Clemens. Also, we know him as Mark Twain. Uh, who was living in Hartford, Connecticut at the time. There was also Dr. Edward Hooker in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, Let's see, here locally, let me see who we can find here. Oh, yes, Um, Reverend Dr. Yarrington uh, of um, Greenwich, Connecticut. And um, let's see, Reverend F.R. Sanford of Riverside, Connecticut. And uh, the list goes on. And so um, this was... The um, the what is it the the Beecher Family School for Young Girls, Costco, Connecticut, located um, at that time in uh, what we knew as the William H. Mead House or the house that was owned by his widow Carolyn Mills Smith Mead. The site of that place today is Costco Elementary School. Well, thank you for listening to the Tuesday, nineteenth of December, twenty twenty three episode of the Greenwich and Town for All Season Show podcast. My name is Jeffrey Bingham-Mead, and I am your host. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast was made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services of New York, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. By all means, please contact me at Greenwich Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. Learn more about Greenwich, Connecticut's history and listen to past shows by going to Greenwich Town for All Seasons.blogspot.com. Look for the show on Facebook, Instagram, and other social media platforms. Our next show is scheduled for Tuesday, the 26th of December, 2023. I'm looking forward to being with you then. Take care. Bye bye now. Thank you.